Hello everybody and welcome back to Witch Fix. Today we're looking at a non-fiction book for what feels like the first time in a while. I haven't had the energy to read one for a bit but I picked this one because uh, it had been on my to read list for a while because I saw it in a consignment book emporium. I don't know if any of those words are correct. A large book warehouse. It was basically like the TK Maxx of books. We went to, when uh, me and some friends went to Austin in Texas. It was such a massive bookstore. I only went with like carry-on bags, so I couldn't buy any of them and bring them home with me. But I did take a picture of this one, so I remember to buy it when I got back. And it is called Wiccan Warrior, Walking a Spiritual Path in a Sometimes Hostile World by Care Coulain which I think is how you pronounce the name, I'm not sure. Apologies if I got that wrong. Author of the Law Enforcement Guide to Wicca and several other books, which I'll talk about in a moment. Uh, so what appealed to me about this book is that I think Wiccans on a whole get kind of a rep of being quite love and light, quite fluffy, quite um, opposed to conflict in all its many forms, shall we say. And yet this seemed to be from a perspective of um, kind of embracing the more defensive aspects of, of magic or of practicing paganism uh, especially from a, a Wiccan perspective and I was quite interested in that specifically because I had kind of an altercation on Twitter with someone who just decided to go off about how Wiccans are all spineless etc etc and although I don't consider myself to be a Wiccan anymore I also don't consider myself to be not a Wiccan if that makes sense there are still some aspects of that left over and incorporated into my practice and so I thought this book would be quite an interesting read in view of that. It is not a particularly long book which is also why I chose it because I felt like I needed a little bit of a rest from from long reads. The actual book part of the book is only 130 pages and then after that you have an appendix which is an initiation ritual and then a really extensive bibliography that goes on for you know at least 20 pages it's it's quite comprehensive a lot of different books and various studies and things have been referred to within the 130 pages of the actual book i'll come back to that in a while because it is one of my main gripes uh but on the whole i did quite enjoy the book it wasn't so much what i thought it was going to be going in but it, it was quite enjoyable now the author has written several other books including full contact magic which i also kind of want to give a read the law enforcement guide to wicca magical self-defense pagan religions a handbook for diversity training modern knighthood witch hunts out of the broom closet and uh, various fiction books under different pseudonyms as well so uh, quite quite a prolific writer um, although I guess by Wiccan writer standards you know usually they have about 120 books to their name but prolific for a, for a normal writer um, and I'm going to jump straight into what I quite liked about the book uh, what I liked about it is that it was clear and quite concise in, in how it put things uh, everything was straightforward there was very little of that trying to explain an ineffable experience because certain spiritual experiences you just can't explain with words but that does not stop people from trying they will go on and on and on paragraph after paragraph wishy-washy imaginings visualizations feelings etc etc and wading through all of that is a nightmare for me i can never keep my head straight on what i meant to be thinking about if i meant to be thinking about anything but this book didn't do that it was practical and down to earth and uh, i quite liked it and uh, from the very start it sets out its terms and definitions which i found really helpful so at the start like the first page 
asked the question, what is a warrior? Which I think is quite important if we're going into a book called The Wiccan Warrior, to learn what that actually is. And it gives it to you on the first page. A warrior is a person who, through objective and thorough self-examination, develops an understanding of personal talents and limitations. As a warrior, you then achieve your goals using a combination of the self-awareness and willpower to overcome weaknesses, fears and limitations. The Wiccan Warrior's path is the Wiccan read in action, and it harm none, do what thou wilt. It is taking responsibility for your actions. It has nothing to do with being a police officer or serving in the military. It has nothing to do with being male or female. You may be a cook, a teacher, a painter, or whatever other occupation you care to name. Every warrior is different. So that's quite an interesting way to go into it. Um, the actual author, uh, there's an about the author sections, but basically breaks down the fact that he was involved in the Air Force, uh, the police, SWAT. Uh, he's been out as a, a pagan while working in the police force so obviously has faced a lot of discrimination on which he does talk about in, in the book a little bit I could have done with maybe more of his own personal experiences to be honest because as I said the book is quite short uh, but page one of the introduction reads as follows I've been a witch for 30 years Wicca is my way of life I've been a witch for longer than I've been a police officer and I've been a cop for two decades I'm public about my beliefs. This makes me a bit of a curiosity because not many police officers these days would admit to practising Wicca. Centuries of religious persecution and intolerance by the church have made it difficult for many Wiccans to find acceptance within Western society, especially Wiccan cops. This is not merely paranoia. In the years that I've been involved in anti-defamation work, I've investigated reports of people losing jobs, homes, children and even their lives as the result of modern day witch hunts. We aren't the only people affected by such discrimination. Plenty of other minority groups have similar tales to tell. The spirit of the Inquisition lives on, though not as openly as it once was. So that's quite an interesting way to go down to earth. I feel like a lot of books that I read, they don't really focus on this aspect. And there was this quite interesting sort of fight going on in a pagan group that I joined recently, where someone had found a video of a pagan, I have no idea who, who she was or what kind of paganism she was involved in, but basically saying that people should be careful about, especially as teens practising witchcraft, if they know that their families aren't going to be cool with it and they should think about that before getting involved because people can, can be discriminated against, people can take it really badly. And the person who had found it was absolutely foaming at the mouth, furious, that this woman had dared to say such a thing uh, because she was a teenager and she found this path and she was really into it and blah, 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 blah. And she just would not accept that this was a danger. She just kept saying, oh, well, it's illegal to throw your children out. It's like, oh, well, it's, it's illegal to throw your children out. So I guess no child has ever been thrown out of their home for anything. It seems like in, in sort of modern times, in sort of 2020, Bill that we find ourselves in people have sort of forgotten the, the religious discrimination because it's become a lot more mainstream a lot more people are more aware now of people practicing witchcraft um but that wasn't always the case so that that, that was sort of an interesting point to be reading this book in, and also in, encountering that so then we get into some chapters defining what a warrior is uh, and i found this quite interesting on page six in modern Western culture, we are surrounded by what we are told of warrior images, G.I. Joe stuff, heroic Hollywood figures played by actors like Eastwood, Stallone, Willis and Schwarzenegger, gladiators solving all the world's problems with fists and firearms. I'm not such an idealist that I believe that I could do my job as a police officer without occasionally using force to manage the violence of criminals. 
There is a big difference between using only as much force as is necessary and the excessive force and destruction that are characteristic of these Hollywood crime dramas. I found that quite interesting as well. It's making this distinction between being a, a warrior uh, as being just kind of a person who uses violence in all situations and being a warrior who knows exactly when and how to use an appropriate amount of force to accomplish their goals. And I feel like that fit very well into my understanding of the Wiccan philosophy of, of it, hand on, do what you will. It's about kind of choosing your battles, choosing how much force that you can reasonably apply before it becomes excessive, before it becomes uh, a matter of just harming people for no reason. So I quite liked that. I quite appreciated it as well. He also has an interesting uh, take on like guns and, and firearms and things like that. Refreshing for an American person. He also on page 15 talks about being in the broom closet and says, I'm not saying here that Wiccan warriors must be public about their beliefs. I'm not suggesting that Wiccan warriors should all become involved in anti-defamation work or public demonstrations. What I am saying is that the Wiccan warrior examines the circumstances of his or her life and makes informed, realistic decisions based on the facts available. Wiccan warriors must thoroughly evaluate the neighbourhood in which they reside to determine if the risks of being public outweigh the possible gains. If you're a solitary Wiccan in a predominantly Bible Belt town, being public not, might not be such a wise idea. Sun Tzu once said, good warriors take their stand on ground where they cannot lose. So again, it's sort of refreshing, it's practical in, in a way that not a lot of pagan books that I find really are. They tend to get lost in this kind of idea of we should all be able to be ourselves. We deserve religious freedom. But there's no real practical advice on how to handle that and how to go about existing in the same world with people who would rather you didn't. So, I, again, I quite liked that. One thing I will say is he does refer to Sun Tzu in that particular quote that I've read out. There are frequent multiple references to lots of different kind of martial arts, um, law, a lot of different sources on that, stories about different warriors in the sort of martial arts culture. I didn't really connect with a lot of that because it's not really something that I'm personally interested in. So go into the book if you decide to read it, forewarned that there is a lot of that, a lot of quotations from books like that. And at times it was quite wearing because I was enjoying what the author was saying in their own words so much. I didn't necessarily want to read a bunch of quotes from The Art of War or Carl Jung or various other sources, all of which are in that very lengthy bibliography. So go into that forewarned. On pages 20 to 21, he raises an interesting point about how raising enormous amounts of energy is not necessarily the be-all and end-all on ritual. It kind of refers back to the quote that I read uh, a moment ago about force and excessive force being used and, and when and where to use it. He basically says that a small amount of energy applied in the correct way is much better than a large amount of energy applied incorrectly. And he gives this example, just a, like a, a little story about someone who started the engine of his vehicle by applying his will to the spark plugs. So applying your, your energy to the part of the situation that actually needs to change, as opposed to the situation as a whole, and being a little bit more incisive. And I thought that was really interesting, definitely something that I hadn't really considered before. He also mentions uh, another martial arts reference here, Bruce Lee. He says on page 21... 
Uh, Bruce Lee was very good at demonstrating these flashy moves for the camera, but one of his most impressive martial arts demonstrations off screen was his one inch punch. He could hold his fist against his assistant's chest, withdraw it just one inch, and punch with sufficient force to drop his assistant flat. Strength was only a tiny part of the equation. Energy or chi supplies the rest. So it's about using energy correctly, which I really like as a concept. He also talks about sort of knowing yourself and dealing with things like guilt and bad habits and things like that. He says uh, on page 22 uh, of Wiccan Warriors... They try to learn from their mistakes and celebrate the successes in their lives. Guilt is eliminated and replaced with the Wiccan Reed. My actions are my responsibility. If I screw up, I fix it. To the Wiccan warrior, that counts as a victory, something she can celebrate. Which I, again, really like as a concept. There's a lot of emphasis put on this Wiccan tendency towards like hand-wringing over, like, oh, doing a spell which could potentially kill a butterfly in China. But... I think it's quite a powerful thing to say, if I go out and, and fuck up, it's not the devil's fault for tempting me and I don't go to God to be forgiven. I have to forgive myself and that means that I have to decide how to make amends in a way that I can live with. So I think that that aspect of personal responsibility is a really good thing to focus on in the book as well. One thing that I found really interesting was the chapter called The Creative Warrior, because it goes into depth about the creation of Wicca and talks about how it was created, which is great because a lot of books tend to sort of perpetuate this myth that, or they just pay it lip service in a couple of lines. So, oh, Gerald Gardner revived ancient pagan customs and created Wicca in 1950, whatever. But this actually talks about the component parts that went into this sort of soup that Gardner then called Wicca and, and the sources of them and whether they're really useful to us now or what their use was then which I think was quite interesting. And so on page 31, he says, I've noticed that some Wiccans get very uncomfortable with this argument because they really would like to believe that Wicca can be traced back to some golden age. They get very upset when certain people argue that Gerald Gardner, considered by many to be the father of modern Wicca, invented a religion. The problem with this argument is that every religion in history had a starting point. It was invented by someone somewhere. Phoenix McFarland views it this way. Religions are invented from shards of older practices. In an archaeological dig, we find one building is built upon the ruins of an older one. Our mythologies, like the phoenix, rise from the ashes of dying faiths. It is part of the circle of life. You don't need to go very far to find an example. It is a well-known and provable fact that the Christian church incorporated many old pagan customs into their worship in its earlier years. Isn't this inventing religion? So I find that, again, quite refreshing. A lot of this book... Um, was just sort of novel to me in the sense that it deviated from the norm in books about Wicca that I had read. And he talks about the different things that went into Wicca and whether they're useful and who for and if we discard them, what to replace them with, which is great because I've never really liked books and things that suggest that you can't really change things or that you're sort of stuck following these rituals handed down, handed down because it's always been so because it hasn't always been so, and I, I'd like a different alternative, please. I liked his view that, uh, he says at the bottom of page 31, My religion isn't better than any other religion. It works for me, therefore it is better for me. I feel a lot of people, specifically when you're like, and this applies to all things, not just religion, specifically on social media and things, people will say like things as if they're fact. 
when what they really mean is this is better for me or this works for me but they'll say it like oh rule of three more like rule of we or something less childish and it'll be like okay yes but that's for you and that's quite a combative inflammatory way to say that whereas if you just said i don't follow it but you do and both aspects and both of those approaches are fine because they're personal and i realize it's on both sides but i feel like people just need to talk about what is good for them and less about what is good period on pages 32 33 and 34 he actually breaks down where different elements of wicca came from so for example he says that there were elements borrowed from the works of margaret murray which were the terms old religion sabbat and esbat the organization of covens into groups of 13 the concept that witchcraft was a religion primarily focused with fertility and then we have things that were borrowed from uh, Leyland which is uh, Charles Jeffrey Leyland who wrote a radio gospel of the witches in 1899 and quite a few things were borrowed from that by Gardner um, the idea that witchcraft survived in secret unchanged the original charge of the goddess the concept of ritual nudity which also owed to Gardner being a nudist himself and then borrowed from the greater key of Solomon uh, was the symbolic scourging the use of pentagrams and triangles as symbols uh, appeals of the guardians of the four cardinal directions consecrating and making ritual tools things like that and a lot of those things also have christian influences in like christian based occultism to do with like angels and demons and things like that i found this a really helpful breakdown of that information could not fact check it because i couldn't be asked uh, but it did seem to make sense to me so uh, i didn't feel like there was anything in there that was necessarily wrong it was quite eye-opening to me especially when he mentions not in this section but later on the purposes of having the sword and the athme and the wand these are tools that i've never really felt comfortable with using and then he talks about sort of the purposes originally behind them describing gardener's book of shadows and i'm like oh okay that's because they're not really relevant to me because i'm not trying to conjure and control forces uh, like demons or angels or spirits within the circle and that's why so a lot of interesting concepts in there as well so if you're interested in sort of some of the historic background of wicca this would be a good jumping off point and it also gives you a lot of references uh, as well to go and read afterwards essentially the end point of the creative warrior chapter is that we should be constantly inventing and reinventing our religion and that saying invented isn't a dirty word it's something that we do all the time as creative human beings we have this impulse to create and do and hone new ideas and new things and that we shouldn't just stay to one way of doing things because we are afraid of being less legitimate so i, I found that quite interesting uh, chapter five is the rational warrior avoiding fundamentalism which um, i also thought was quite interesting because it talks a lot about um, basically how wicca and other forms of paganism in order to become recognized and legitimized in western societies where a lot of the practitioners are based they have to ape the constructs and language of the existing faiths primarily christianity and talking about how pagan churches have formed and clergy and, and the notion of that which is more to do with trying to appease christianity and trying to appear the same as it and just as legitimate instead of actually serving wiccans and pagans in the best way possible and it talks about the end result of, of forming that kind of church that kind of 
religious framework uh, is that it becomes full of fundamentalism and it becomes like Christianity. He says this on page 44. Churchianity became political. The Burning Times is an example of what can happen when such a state religion gains control over the minds of people. Christians don't have a monopoly in this regard. Look at what the ancient Romans did to the Christian martyrs in the Colosseum. Clearly this sort of activity is contrary to the Wiccan read, as people are being harmed. And yet, I've seen some Wiccan organisations mimicking all the above behaviours. For example, if a coven decides to purchase land or a permanent temple, it is committing itself to numerous overhead costs and responsibilities. Similarly, if a person turns their position as a Wiccan elder into a profession, i.e. their sole source of income, it puts an awful lot of pressure on them to make money by whatever means to provide the basic necessities of life for themselves. This pressure sometimes leads to questionable activities. Many modern pagan organisations that have adopted congregational models are quite benign and useful, but not all. The tendency of some modern Wiccan organisations to separate people into lay and clergy, secular and religious, is another example of dualism being superimposed on a monistic system. It's a curious thing that so many of us left traditional Judeo-Christian religious systems behind because of these activities, only to find some of our peers starting to model their Wiccan beliefs after it. Again, that's something that I find really interesting, definitely food for thought. Uh, and what I liked about this book so, was that so often what it was saying, especially in these early chapters, were things that I had not read in other books. It felt like a very original idea. It felt like someone had sat down and put a lot of, of thought into what they wanted to say about the systems of faith and to talk about Wicca as a religion as opposed to like a spiritual practice, which is very kind of airy fairy and doesn't really demand anything of you which I think is kind of what I missed about reading about Wicca is reading about how it is a religion that shapes your life and your experiences and not just a spiritual thing that is very um, kind of freewheeling it kind of falls between the, the very rigid religious strictures of like Christianity and the very free-flowing new age kind of talk it's sort of in the middle there because it does change, it does evolve, but also it does have these philosophical aspects that are quite interesting to look at and discuss. Uh, so this was probably the part of the book that I enjoyed the most because it was talking about something that I was really quite interested in. Where it started to differ a little bit, and I'm not going to say fall apart because it didn't really fall apart, but from chapter six onwards, so part two of the book, it focused more on practical work, on raising energy, directing energy, spell work. And I felt like I had read this sort of thing in other books before and it kind of lost that more original edge, which was what I was enjoying so much about the beginning of the book. That's not to say that it didn't give me interesting things to think about, but at the same time, I became a little bit unstuck and, and wasn't enjoying myself as much. Uh, <laughs> there are some interesting ideas, especially like on page... 57 there is some discussion of of skyclad and where that idea came from and why it doesn't really make sense uh, which i quite liked it says basically that um people say that they work skyclad to to stop energy like being trapped by their clothing uh, and yet they'll happily raise energy in that state and then send it thousands of miles so apparently it can get through the wall of a house and, and cross all this distance but it can't get through one layer of poly cotton blend um, so if you, I mean, obviously if you, you can work Skyland if you want to, but I, I just don't feel, again, like that's a reasonable excuse and the author doesn't either. So um, that was quite 
funny for me to read. Uh, he also talks about on page 60 using different mantras and things and um, using them to direct and raise energy in certain ways, which again was quite interesting. Then raising energy with drumming, dance, a little bit about grounding. None of that was particularly groundbreaking. I had read it elsewhere. Obviously, if you hadn't read it elsewhere, then those would probably be quite interesting for you. Well, I, uh, another interesting philosophical point that I came across was on page 77. Uh, he says, In many of the earliest mythologies, the deity that creates the earth and everything on it is female. The goddess slash creatrix literally gives birth to the earth and its creatures. Patriarchal systems rewrote this, making the male deity the creator. Because in nature, the male does not give birth. They had to come up with some different ways for their god to create. You see some interesting examples of this in later Greek myths, such as Zeus giving birth to his children out of his head or thigh. In Judaism and Christianity, Jehovah begat the universe by uttering specific words. For example, in Genesis. That was quite an interesting concept to me, um, although it is quite binary in its view of gender. But I will agree that men generally don't give birth. Um, the kind of concept, and it made me really think about like the creation myths of different uh, deities, like male deities, like, you know, they breathe life into things, they speak life. And he uses this to create a parallel between these male and female types of god creation story and these ways of doing magic, which aren't specifically male and female, but seem to be related to these myths. So, for example, you've got like ceremonial magic where it's like the true names of things and magical words that are kept secret and passed down between people. And it's very much like the word and the action are what is powerful. And then there's the other style of birthing magic into the world, which is a more kind of instinctual way of performing magic, which he goes into in more detail on page 81. Now let's get back to the beginning and the other Genesis myth, the goddess giving birth. Words and ceremony are irrelevant in this nativity. It is essentially a very simple and naturally a natural internal process. Using this model, magic becomes a simple matter of raising energy and directing it with your will, giving birth to magic. Uh, so that's more about sort of raising energy and, and sort of feeling that energy and then directing it as yourself and not relying on like magic words, magic rituals, magic phrases and tools and things. I found that really interesting. Uh, it was very much in line with how I practice myself, but it was interesting to see it related back to this sort of creation myth idea and uh, and written about in that sense. So again, that was quite interesting for me. He also talks about how a lot of grimoires and, and things of essentially old magic are fake and gives the Necronomicon as an example uh, which was an imaginary book made up by H.P. Lovecraft and then someone actually created it because there was a demand like people wanted to read the, Necrocom uh, the Necronomicon from all these H.P. Lovecraft stories and similar things have happened with other made up books uh, of different um, power he goes into a little bit about power with versus power over and talks about kind of having power with the aid of deities versus summoning things into the circle and then compelling them to help you. This also factors into coven dynamics when he talks about those, about how people should uh, not try and keep uh, lots of knowledge secret into themselves because by sharing it, they lose power because that is just power over someone as opposed to having power with others um, um 
actually sharing your knowledge with other people is quite an interesting thing which uh, he goes into later on he essentially talks about coven dynamics and initiation specifically as part of that closed off system of like institutional religion talk like referring it back to christianity and these titles and degrees that need to be earned and he has some really interesting thoughts on that so that was quite an interesting section to read and he also talks about removing things from the uh, gardenerian uh, initiation ritual because he didn't feel they were necessary and he kind of picks this apart bit by bit uh, but i'll just read you a little bit to, to sort of go into um, the sort of things that he was talking about. This is from page 118. Another thing that we threw out is the symbolic scourging that many Wiccan traditions do at this point of the initiation, using a soft silken cord or some such. Before they do this, they ask the initiate if they are willing to suffer to learn, or if they are willing to undergo an ordeal before taking an oath. While this may have fulfilled the needs or fantasies of Gardner and some early British Gardnerians, I do not see that it serves any useful purpose for most other Wiccans. Gently slapping a person with a soft cord isn't an ordeal. All the evidence points to this being a means of sexually arousing Gardner. Sexual arousal wasn't the purpose of this initiation, and in any case, I don't need this to get aroused. Worse, this part of the ritual is clearly symbolic of the domination of the initiator, or priest-slash-priestess, over the initiate. The initiate trussed up and bound to the altar, and the initiator scourging the initiate. Power over stuff again. Um, so that's quite inflammatory in, in the way it talks about Gardner. Um, but it is kind of true, looking at some of the, the original Gardnerian stuff about how, like, the goddess is always represented by, like, the high priestess, who is always a, a young and attractive woman, and quite a lot of it comes down to nakedness and sex. It does definitely feel like someone, somehow, is getting off to this. And if that's not your purpose, if that's not what you're into, then why would you need to keep doing it just because it's traditional? So again, really like that sort of aspect, really like the forthrightness of, of the author for discussing that. Uh, I also liked how um, they changed some of the things that the initiate has to swear to. It says on page 119, they then make you take an oath never to reveal anything about the craft to an outsider. They threaten that the measure that was taken could be used to perform magic against the initiate if he ever failed to keep his oath. In my opinion, this is just another of the things that Gardner slipped in to make the Book of Shadows look as if it dated from the Inquisition. Two, even if it did date back from back then, why take someone's measure if you're just going to give it back to them? Three, it is utterly ludicrous to make someone swear never to reveal things that can be read by literally anyone with the money to buy one of dozens of available books in print about Wicca. So I kind of like this. It's taking apart these institutions. Um, there was sort of a sense of of someone finally saying the emperor has no clothes because i'd never heard someone sp speak like this about a uh, gardener and wicker before or, or just those kind of hallmarks passed down into like all wicker um so that was qu really quite interesting and generally a kind of an, an interesting look at some of the things that people tend to just take as read or write of as read in other books about wicker so that's why i really enjoyed it I really kind of want to go on and read the self-defense magic book because I feel like that's more of what I thought I was in for with this. This tended to just be a sort of a, a philosophical look at using the warrior archetype alongside Wicca, whereas I was looking for more um, uses and methods for defensive magic. But in the end, it was quite an interesting book. Even if you're not Wiccan, 
I think you should definitely give it a read because you might, one, enjoy the irreverent slant towards all things Wiccan, but also because it might help to break down some of the barriers between, like, Wicca and people who are just practising, like, witchcraft as a craft and not as a religion. I think there's a lot that we can learn from each other and this book was definitely useful for me as, like, a former Wiccan, current witch, um, to help me look at some aspects of my practice and reevaluate them and sort of work out what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do. And also because some of the things that it talks about, like the use of the magical tools, the words that we use for certain things being invented by Gardner, that has trickled into just modern witchcraft as well as a sort of like trickle through from Wicca. So it might be interesting to, even if you're not Wiccan, read about where those things come from and sort of how to assess if they're relevant for you. Um, but definitely I, I recommend giving this book a read. It's not that long, so you could probably read this in a couple of afternoons as I did. And uh, let me know via Twitter or just the comments on the YouTube version of the podcast if you had a good time with it, if you've read it or any of the author's other books. Um, let me know your thoughts because I'm trying to pick what to read next. And in the meantime, I'll see you in the next one. Bye! <laughs>